Well, if you would, uh, you can be seated and take your Bibles and turn to Exodus and turn to the sixth chapter. And um, I got ready to uh, get up here and I, my Kindle that I use, it said battery is low and it's like it's been plugged in all week. And so I ran and got an uh, iPad, thankful for uh, technology. And because um, it's so big, I'm going to stand back here today. And we're going to talk about the willingness of God. I'm afraid that for a lot of us, when we talk about things concerning God and the will of God, it almost always goes a little bit negative, doesn't it? It's like, um, here's what I need, here's what I want, here's where I am. Now I somehow have to convince and twist God's arm into doing what he promised to do. Now, when you think about that, that's not a very pleasant thing to have to do. Who am I to stand up? against God. Who am I to try to persuade God? I wouldn't even be a good attorney in a human court, much less in the heavenly court. And sometimes we get the idea that God is an unwilling God. But in this passage that we're going to read today, I want you to notice how many times God, as he speaks to Moses, and we're going to kind of go back over what we looked at last week, how many times God says, I will, I will, I will. Because what I want you to understand is that the will of God, it actually means that God will do something. It's not just that he desires, he will. This is the will of God. This is what God wills to do. And as a sovereign, almighty God, he has the power to perform it. Martin Luther made the statement talking about prayer and while this is not a message so much about prayer, but the, the sentiment here is really big. He says that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness. And what I want you to see that whether it is Egyptian slaves or Israeli slaves in the Egyptian empire, or whether now, these thousands of years later, whether it's you as a new covenant child of God who has been redeemed out of the kingdom of Satan and slavery and bondage to him, God's willingness to work in your life and to fulfill his promises is just as real. And so in Exodus 6, three verses we'll look at, verses 6 through 9. It says, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Okay, here's where these statements start. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you uh, with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give, to you as a herit give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke these things to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And last week we made the point. Sometimes we're quick to judge people. Because they don't hear us. And they don't hear the word of God. 
and we really don't know what all it is that they're going through. We need to be a little more sensitive about that because as the Holy Spirit writes this book for us, it certainly makes an account for why they didn't listen. Doesn't mean it was okay for them not to listen. It's just that God understands the reasons for all of that. And I'm glad that I have a God who knows me that well. When I think about the promises of God, four words come to mind. The first word is the word certainty. Whatever God promises, you don't ever have to uh, think about or rationalize, will this happen or is this going to happen or it would be great if this would happen, but it's probably not going to. It is a certain, certain thing. You notice in these verses, God did not say, I hope to redeem you. I hope to take you into the land. I sure hope this works out. He makes it very certain, I will. Second word is the word confidence. God's promises are to give us confidence as we face the trials of life. I don't know what you're going to face. I don't know what I'm going to face in the future. But we are to go into it with a, not only the certainty of the promises, but with confidence that God will fulfill his promises, not just for old heroes in the Bible, not just for the super spiritual, the elites among us, I've heard some people say, well, of course God answers his prayer. Look who he is. Of course God answers her prayer. Uh, look at all the things that she does. And we forget sometimes that it's always God hearing our prayers by grace. And we have confidence, the Bible says, to enter into the holy place, not because of what we've done or how well we performed, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's confidence in the promises of God because they're based upon Him. Your faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. So great faith comes from having a great God, a great Savior, and that gives us confidence in a God who doesn't lie. Thirdly, notice that the promises of God are what we would call comprehensive. Now, if God is going to take the Israelis out of Egypt and he's going to take them through the wilderness and then put them in a land and then allow them to conquer that land and live in that land, then that means God's got to do a whole lot more than just set them free. It's got to be a whole lot more than just making Pharaoh let them go. He's got to feed them. He's got to clothe them. He's got to take care of their children that are born. He has got to give them water in the desert. All of those things. In other words, it reminds me of what Paul said, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. In other words, it covers anything and everything that you need. Someone said one time, if God doesn't provide it, you don't require it. That's a good thing to remember. And God is going to take care of it because his promises are comprehensive. They cover every part of our life. But also notice that God laid out these promises here so that you don't have to guess as to whether he did it or not. God lays it all out so that when it's finished, it is clear Moses did not do this. Even Pharaoh did not do this. The people of Israel did not do this. This wasn't a revolution or an uprising. This is one of the most unlikely things in, the, uh, in history. How did they get out? Because God did it through his promises, through his strength, and with his outstretched arm. That is an amazing thing. And there are things that God is doing in your life that you don't fully understand, but I do give you this promise 
that when they are all completed, all completed, you're going to know it. And you're going to know that it was God. I think one of the great things about heaven is going to be the ability to look back over our life and everyone else's for that matter, and to look at the movement of God through history, through the rise and fall of empires, through uh, pandemics, through wars, through all of these things that we don't understand, and to be able to put it all together, and for eternity we will be rejoicing in the discovery of God's completion of everything that he planned to do. I think it's going to all make sense when that happens. There were a lot of things here that didn't make sense to Moses. You remember, he's in the midst of saying, God, I showed up. Where were you? Lord, I did what I was supposed to do to Pharaoh. And not only did Pharaoh make the task harder on the people, but now even the people themselves don't want to hear what I have to say. And you promised to deliver, and you haven't delivered. And it's as if God is saying to Moses, you know, calm down, chill out. I've got this. I will do this. And he reiterates these things. Now Moses could have been like some of us, rolled his eyes and said, I've heard this before. But God is not doing it simply to, um, you know, reiterate something. He's doing it because he wants to reassure Moses. Whatever your eyes see and whatever your ears hear uh, all around you, whether it's from Pharaoh or whether it's from the Egyptians, whether you are seeing their task being monumental or, or whatever it might be, understand there's only one word that matters, there's only one promise that matters, and that is the promise of God. And I want to uh, take a look at these I wills here very briefly. And I want you to notice that these uh, correspond to what God gave to Abraham in uh, the 17th chapter of Genesis uh, in verses 6, 7, 8, 19, and 21. And uh, they also are interesting because they are the picture of grace in a, a, a Christian's life, in your life, and in my life. This uh, whole thing about Israel being in bondage is kind of a picture of us. You and I were once slaves in Egypt. What was Egypt? That was our old life, our lostness, death. We were slaves to sin. Who was Pharaoh? We were under the dominion of Satan, and we couldn't liberate ourselves. We couldn't get out of it at all. And the whole thing is a picture of God's redemption. And each one of these things that talk about I will, there's a certain uh, type of grace that I've attached to these and I want to share them with you. Number one, God says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, why isn't that just enough? Why did God have to say six other things to make this clear? Well, the thing would be that uh, God says, I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and put you under the burdens of the Amalekites. I mean, just to be free from the burdens of the Egyptians doesn't necessarily mean anything other than you're no longer going to serve or be under their dominion. But you could be a slave to someone else. God has more to say because this is only the first one. This is just the beginning. This is like when you came to the point of understanding that you were a sinner before God. 
Understanding that you deserved to die and to spend an eternity in hell. Understanding that the only way out from under that eternal sentence of death is through the liberating blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you came to the place to where you trusted him, you surrendered him and you asked, you surrendered to him and asked God to forgive you of your sins because they were paid for by the blood of Christ and you submitted to him. At that moment you were saved, but you didn't know anything. At that moment you were saved, you hadn't experienced anything, you were like a newborn babe, completely and totally dependent uh, upon God, as of course you are now, but God has it uh, in mind, a plan for you to learn and for you to grow. This is taking you out of Satan's kingdom, Paul says, out of the kingdom of darkness and placing you into the kingdom of light. And so God says, I'm going to take you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. But then he goes on to say, and I will rescue you from their bondage. And this is more of the sanctifying grace that we talked about. It's not just relief from the burden. It is getting out of Egypt. It's getting away from them where they will never rule over you again. And God is doing that in your life today. There are certain sins you've struggled with maybe for decades. And God is still in the process of setting you free from that. However he has to do it. And whatever it takes to do that. Because he doesn't want you under the burden of the Egyptians, but he also wants to set you free from the bondage. They will no longer have dominion over you. It sounds like the book of Romans, doesn't it? For sin shall no longer have dominion over you. You see, getting the people out of Egypt is one thing, but getting Egypt out of them is another, and it takes some time to do that. And God is telling them, I'm going to set you free not only from their burden, but even from bondage. You're going to learn how to think. You're going to learn how to act as free people and people that belong to the Lord, not people that are just simply slaves. And then the third thing that he says is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, when he does this, he's talking about overcoming grace. This is the grace that uh, comes into our lives to liberate us and deliver us when we have a problem. You see, when the uh, people of Israel took that lamb, and when they butchered that lamb, and they put the blood of the lamb over their doors, remember that? And that night, the death angel passed over them, and all of the Egyptians, the firstborn of everything they had, well, it died. And the Israelis were spared. That was the beginning. But then after they are driven out of Egypt, Pharaoh says, go, get out of here. I'm not just letting you go. I'm commanding you to go get out of the land lest we all die. Remember that? Well, there must have been a lot of singing and shouting, a lot of smiles, a lot of pats on the back. This is it. Oh, man, can it get any better than this? And then they have the Red Sea experience. And when they get to the Red Sea, it seems like, why did God bother to let us out of Egypt only to die here at the hands of the Egyptians because they're coming after us to buy us back, to get us back, and we are stuck here at the sea. And you remember God stretched out his hand. And he did it through the rod of Moses, right? And they walked across on dry land. And the Egyptians were the ones that drowned in that sea. 
And so when we think about God doing this for us, as he has liberated us, as he has set us free from slavery and burden and liberated us, now he's got to continually teach us, just like he had to teach them, to depend upon him every day. Our faith is not just a faith of back in the past, God saved me. It is the fact that today in your life and my life, God is still saving me. The Apostle Paul said, the God who has delivered us and will deliver us is delivering us. We're experiencing it and we're experiencing it all the time because this is the outstretched arm of God. This is the grace of God, the overcoming grace of God because we still have a lot of stuff in our lives that need to be overcome. And the fourth thing that he says is, I will take you as my people. This is what we call redeeming grace. God says, I am going to take you and you're not just going to be this nation that I favor. You're actually going to be my family, a part of the family, a part of the family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, right? Washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this thought. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. This is the God that walks with us through many dangerous toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. This is the God who walks with us because he lives within us, and he lives within us because he has purchased us we are not our own Paul said we are bought with a price therefore glorify God and so we do that why because we're part of the family of God we open up the Bible and we read it and it's not just words on a page it's a love letter from our heavenly father we understand the inheritance that we have in Christ comes to us because just as a father leaves a will and that will gives his children an inheritance we have the will of God and we take it as our inheritance because he has redeemed us the word redeemed means to purchase and how did God purchase us through the shed blood of his only begotten son he has redeemed us and he has made us his people we belong to him and then number five and he says not only will you be mine but I will be yours I will be your God the twofold thing here I am his and he is mine his banner over me is love we used to sing and so the thing that God owns us is one thing to think about. But that God says, I will be your God. You will possess me and you will possess my promises. You will possess all of my inheritance is an amazing thing. And it must have been amazing to these slaves to think about. This is what we call adoptive grace. Who but God could take a sinner like you? Who but God could take a rebel like you? Who but God <coughs> could take an unworthy sinner like you and bring them into the family of God to where he says, I am adopting you. Remember what the Bible says? He has given us his spirit so that we cry, Abba, Father. And why do we do that? Because we've received the spirit of adoption. 
And Paul writes that under Roman law that an adoptive child could never be disinherited. And so you are a child of God by birth. You're born again. But you're also a child of God by adoption. He brought you as an alien, as someone outside of the family and brought you into his own. And you are secured by his will where you can never be cast out. He who comes unto me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out, secure and kept by the power of God, the adoptive grace of God. Number six, God says, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? This is what we call preserving grace. You think about all of the things that could have happened to keep Israel from being in the land even as they are today, much less during this time. You think about the fact that all the devil had to do was kill Abraham. Promises is done. Promise is over. God's word has failed. All he has to do is maybe kill Isaac or kill Jacob or kill their offspring. All he has to do is maybe get them out of that land into a foreign land like Egypt and cause the government to turn hostile toward them and to put them into slavery. And he's thinking he's got it made. All he has to do is get the midwives to kill all of the male children. Then the uh, children of Israel can't reproduce. Problem solved. They'll never be back into the land. But God always preserves his people until he finishes what he has promised to do in them. And as we think about this grace of God that preserved this nation, this grace of God that took Abraham, one guy who had one son through whom the promise was going to be kept. You think about Isaac and you think about Esau and Jacob and just that one son through whom all of that was going to happen. All he had to do was take them out. But God said, no, no, my hand is upon them. And every word that I have promised is going to be fulfilled. And how unlikely it is that a nation could come out of people like that. How unlikely it is that with all of the threats against Israel and against the Jews, including the Holocaust during World War II. How unlikely it is that an ancient religion and an ancient race of people could ever be preserved even to this very day and to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a testimony to them. They're a great people, but it's not a testimony to them. It's a testimony to the God who made a promise to a man named Abraham. And now we are watching in Exodus all of that being fulfilled. Promises that Abraham never actually experienced. That Isaac and Jacob never actually experienced. But their descendants are going to experience here. Why? Because God is preserving his people. And it reminds me that in the New Testament when it talks about us, we are the ones that God preserves. And we know that in the Psalms, all of our days are written in a book even before there were any. And that we're not going to die a second sooner than God wills. We're not going to live a second longer than God wills. This is the way God keeps us. But he also is the one that Jesus told us that we are held in the hand of Jesus. That's a good place to be. And then Jesus said, and those who are in my hand 
are in the Father's hand. And he said, my Father is greater than all. And what did he promise us through that illustration? That of all that the Father gives them, he would lose only 10%. That's not a bad loss, is it? 5%? 2%? He makes a statement and the promise he would lose N-O-N-E. Anybody know what that spells? None of them. How many of you were born again this morning? Say amen. You're included in that word. He's not going to lose you because he preserves the people that are in his kingdom. And that brings us to number seven as we finish up here. He says, and I will give to you as a heritage. Give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Heritage. Heritage. We throw that word around a lot. But when you get right down to it, what is a heritage? Well, we talk about some things like who was your great-grandfather? Who was your great-great-grandmother? Where did they come from? What did they do? And we talk about our heritage. Mine came over on the Mayflower, some might say. Will Rogers said, my ancestors didn't come over on the Mayflower. They met them at the shore, right? The heritage that we have. Some of you may have a noble, regal heritage. I watched a show. uh, What's the name of it? Who do you think you are? Or something like that. And I can't remember the name of the actress. But um, when they traced her uh, lineage back, they went all the way back to 1000 AD. Charlemagne. That's amazing. Doesn't really change your life or anything. I mean, I've always thought about wouldn't it be cool to get that uh, telegram or uh, delivery from a lawyer or something that you had inherited an estate in England or something like that, and all of a sudden you're a multimillionaire. I mean, most of the time when we do our DNA and we find out our heritage, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just interesting, you know, just interesting. But when God says this here, I'm giving you, he tells the Jews, I'm telling you what I'm going to give you. You're going to march out of Egypt. You're going to go through a 40-year wilderness experience. They don't know that. And the next generation is going to cross over and the walls of Jericho are going to fall down and thus it begins. They begin to possess the land and that is their heritage. That is what their father has bequeathed them. That is what the will says that they have earned. That is what the will says that they have, uh, well, not really earned, but been given. They're entitled to that by the promises of the God, by, of God, by the, the will of God it is, as it is given. And this is uh, what we talk about, the sovereign grace of God. This is the God who says, I have chosen you. This is the God that says, I am sanctifying you. This is the God who says, I'm meeting all of your needs. This is a God who says, I have a will for you being who you are and where you are, doing what you're doing in the time period that you're doing it. I'm going to bless it and I'm going to uh, live and work through you. This is your heritage and we live as citizens of the kingdom of God we are the inheritors of grace that's what it means when it says that we are heirs of God and then on top of that to be a joint heir with Christ 
Now, in the Bible, the firstborn got particular privileges. They inherited more of the father's estate than the other, their siblings did. And so when the Bible says we're heirs of God, okay, but what am I, seventh down the line, tenth down the line, a million down the line, my share is going to be pretty puny. And Paul says, no, you are a joint heir with the firstborn. You share in what he has inherited. It's an amazing thing. Because a heritage kind of goes both ways. You receive it from your ancestors, but you also leave it to those who are coming up behind you. And this is what the promises of God talk about. The richness that we have, that we were liberated by the Lord, that He is sanctifying us and preserving us and blessing us. Just like He told the children of Israel through Moses so many years ago. There was a tweet by uh, John Piper that I'll close with this. He said, I received a letter this morning informing me that I have come into the inheritance of unimaginable wealth. How'd you like to receive that letter? I am the legal heir now, but I will enjoy the best part of it the moment I die and the rest when Jesus comes. And then he writes this, and I understand that the letter has been sent to millions. You know what, child of God? That's the letter that was written to you. That's what the Word of God teaches you. Pictured in the Old Testament, promised specifically in the New, all because of the grace of a loving Father who had no reason to have anything to do with any of us except that He wanted to except that he chose to. And it was the good pleasure of his will to lavish all of the riches of grace upon you. Not just today. Not just yesterday. But it's a forever thing. In heaven we will still be enjoying the grace of God and the inheritance that God has given us. So I hope that as you've looked at this today, That number one, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, that even now, whether you're watching this on live stream, and again, you're so welcome here, and we thank you for doing that, and we appreciate you doing that, or whether you're here in the auditorium today, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Are you born again? Have you entered into this wonderful, matchless inheritance? Secondly, if you are a child of God, I pray that this message and thinking about what God has said through this, that it actually brings you hope. To know that you don't serve a God who is reluctantly doling out His promises just because He has to. But a God who is so willing to lavishly bless you, you can't even comprehend it. And those blessings are going to be fulfilled as your life ends and when you enter into those gates of pearl walking into heaven because eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Praise God for that, right? And then thirdly, I pray that this message gives you hope that wherever you are right now, you might feel stuck, you might feel frustrated, You might be looking and saying, everything I hoped for and dreamed for, everything I thought was going to happen has just kind of unraveled right before my eyes. You know how that feels? And today, today, may the Lord say, 
to your heart. Not as long as I'm alive, child. There's always purpose in every breath. Purpose in every heartbeat. Purpose in every circumstance that you're going through. And what you were doing is going to matter for the glory of God and the kingdom of God is going to be rewarded. And keep in mind your situation that you're going through on earth is a temporary one. You can endure what you're going through now. Why? Because you've got an eternity to live without it. And that's a pretty good trade when you think about it. Why does that happen? Because we go to church, because we give money, because we live a moral life. No, those things are the result of what God has done in our heart, not the cause. And God redeems his children and he does it by his grace and for his glory. And even your suffering is for his glory. And when God puts the promises in gear for your life, you're going to end up saying one thing. And it's not going to be, what took you so long? It's not going to be, well, it's about time. No, you're going to end up saying this. He doeth all things well. That's faith. That's hope. And that's our confidence in the Lord. A God who has a will and a God who is willing. Not overcoming his reluctance, but trusting and laying hold of his willingness. And all God's people said, Amen. Let that sink into your heart. Can we pray together? Lord God, as we come to you, we don't just come to a higher power who just rules and forces things to happen. We're not the world. We're not Pharaoh who was forced to liberate the children of Israel. We're the children of Israel. You are the one who has called us by name. You're the one who knows us. You're the one who says that you not only will redeem us, but you will be our God. Thank you for that. You're the God who is not forcing things and enforcing things upon us like you do the lost world. You're the God who gives us promises like manna every day. You're the God who gives us promises like water from the rock. You're the God who gives us promises like people who are going to inherit a land, people who are going to become a great nation that endure to this day. Thank you, Father, that you have known us, you have paid for our sins, you have called us to be your children, and you have a will, a plan, and a purpose for us that even though we don't know the particulars, we don't understand all of it, we say this, in spite of everything I see and feel, I trust you. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being our Shepherd. Thank you for the precious promises of God. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for you all being here. I hope you have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And remember what that really is all about. Those who have given their lives for our freedom. Thank you for those of you who are watching by live stream. That means so much to us to know that you're there. And uh, if we can do anything to help you, we want to do that. And may the Lord bless you. Amen.